0: You are listening to Natural Born Alchemist. Welcome to episode number 233 of the Natural Born Alchemist podcast. My name is Alex and I'll be your host. It's the last Sunday of the month and we'll be listening to a talk as usual. And for any new listeners, the last Sunday of the month I always play a pre-recorded talk. So no rants by me and no interviews of any kind. And this talk I'm going to play now uh, will be a discussion about hell between scientist and author Rupert Sheldrake and psychotherapist and author Mark Vernon. And I've recently gone through hell myself. Uh, not long ago, my uh, computer crashed. And it was a nightmare. I I was actually about to do a major backup. But the computer crashed before I had the chance to do that. And uh, I lost a lot of shit. And I had to pay some money to get these uh, nerds to... Uh, Extract uh, the stuff I had lost, and they managed to recover maybe seventy percent. And uh, as far as I can tell, it's the important seventy percent. And even though you know, you know, when you have a child, you you take a lot of pictures. You don't really look at them, but for some reason, it really s- didn't sit well with me, having lost a whole year of my daughter's photos and that so uh, anybody out there you know don't take your computers for granted do backups for God's sake do backups or you will go through a digital hell so from now on I'm gonna do backups on a regular basis and they take so long I have so much stuff you know and um, I'm sure there's easier ways to do backup than I used to do backups but You know I'm also trying to live in the moment but when you lose everything you realize you're not living in the moment you're actually living in the past so all this this whole experience has been a lesson in itself you know not hold not to hold on to stuff because in the end you know you can't take anything with you when you die okay so enough of that Uh, let's uh, listen to Sheldrake and Vernon Ponder the question, what is hell?
1: Welcome to this Sheldrake-Vernon Dialogue. I'm Rupert Sheldrake, and I'm here with Mark Vernon. Hi, Rupert. Hi. Hi, Mark. What we do in these dialogues is talk to each other. We meet uh, fairly regularly, and we talk about things that we're thinking about um, and which we want to discuss with each other. And these are not pre-scripted or prepared. They're just our actual discussions they're just the kinds of discussions we have when we're not recording them. Um, and uh, what we're going to talk about today, I hope, is uh, a subject that was brought up by someone who listens to our podcasts and who wrote in saying, uh, requesting that we had a conversation on the subject of hell. And at first I thought, well, this would be too difficult to do. And then I thought about it and I thought, actually, it would be a really interesting thing to discuss um and so Mark, what I thought uh, just giving a kind of historical background. I know I think you know more about this than me, and you're a psychotherapist, so you uh, are more aware of people's individual hells than I am.
2: I won't make the link and ask why our listener thought of hell when he was listening to our dialogues, but nonetheless. <laughs> <laughs> um,
1: well, I mean, what's translated as hell in the King James Bible in in the Old Testament is Sheol, and um, the Jewish people who used that phrase were thinking in terms of, as far as I can understand, a kind of shadowy underworld, rather like the Greek idea of Hades, a kind of shadowy realm of the dead um, beneath the earth. Yeah,
2: so and, th- to, if you're really interested in the, the biblical, the New Testament words, um, David Bentley Hart's recent translation of the New Testament is really good here, because he keeps distinct the three words which are often just translated as hell in the new testament and there's the Sheol, there's gehenna and then there's hades and um so these are quite distinct sort of notions um and the way that i understand it is that at the time of the new testament so the beginnings of christianity um there was a growing sense that the individual would stand um be judged after life um and that uh depending on how they lived, as it were, the quality of their soul um, would determine where they went next. That's putting it a bit crudely. It was a bit more sophisticated. It was more like, I think, um, how you departed this life um, shaped what kind of experience you could have in the next life. It was more like that. Um, Were you, as it were, up for heaven? um, Or would that not be sort of possible because of the person that you would become? So it's a bit more nuanced than just the kind of judging god, but the the key thing is that before about um zero a d um so maybe if you look back to say five hundred b c e even further back um the standard notion had been very different that essentially when people died, they returned to the ancestors so in <laughs> in the Old Testament, for example, you know Abraham is said to have been buried with his ancestors and many of the kings. Um, in the Old Testament too, uh, it said, and they were buried with their ancestors. And this is a very different idea. This is the idea that y- you, when you died, you, your individuality, um, kind of dispersed and returned to the kind of collective group or tribe from whence you came. So it's very important, for example, to be buried on the ancestral ground because that symbolized how your individual life was returning to the life of the tribe. And again, burial practices start to change. So, um, leading up to the emergence of Christianity, burial practices, um, had started to develop the idea of individual burial. So it's not the tribe and the ancestors that matter, but the individual matters at the point of death, who then, um, you know, stands in judgment. Um, and so either goes, You know, to put it too simplistic, but, you know, are they going up or down? Um, And and interesting, you get a similar development in in Greek ideas too, um, a different part of the Mediterranean. But nonetheless, this idea that rather than going to Hades and becoming a shade that kind of flitters away and just kind of disperses, um, you get the idea that people will be judged. So people like Plato and so on start to write about um, judgment. um, And a very nice little uh, bit of history that shapes that is Alexander the Great. Um, uh, because Alexander the Great um, modelled himself very much on um, Achilles from Homer. And he would have known that when Achilles' great friend Patroclus died, Achilles is said to have gone to Hades and been deeply distressed because Patroclus had become a shade and was just sort of flick- flickering away. And Achilles realized that he would never see Patroclus again. Patroclus was returning, as it were, to the background life from whence he'd come and Alexander, um when his great friend um uh, Hephaiston was killed um was very distressed about whether he would ever see Hephaiston again. But when he asked the gods, um he was delighted to discover that Hephaiston actually was living on in the afterlife um and so he would see um his beloved friend again. Um, And so in those two different stories, you've got the the, the movement from um, the idea that when you die, you return to the ancestors and you cease to be in any individual sense to the idea that when you die, some kind of identity carries on and the quality of your life afterwards is shaped in some way by your life now. So that's a nice sort of change. And you get the emergence of hell with that or Hades, Gehenna, Sheol, these kind of different ideas.
1: But if we look back, you know, two or three thousand years earlier than that, in ancient Egypt, there was clearly an idea that that certain people, not necessarily because of the quality of their life, but because of their status in society, would go up into heaven. I mean, the whole point of the tombs and that enormous technology of death that the Egyptians had, mummies and so on. Uh, was based on the idea that the soul of the pharaohs would be projected up into heaven. They also had a judgment where they had scales. There are pictures of them in Egyptian tombs where they'd be weighed. Um, so clearly, uh, although these emerged much later in Christianity and and in Greece, they, they were not original ideas. They'd been around for at least 2,000 years, maybe more, in the context of Egypt, which had a big influence on both judeo-christianity and greece
2: yeah i mean that's absolutely right so um the story is a, a similar kind of development um but because in egypt and i think also in assyria um these are very hierarchical so- societies um you know that had existed for millennia um where broadly the idea there is that, um, that similarly there weren't individuals um but what happened was people had a sort of collective identity and particularly in the person of the pharaoh So um, what happened to the pharaoh really mattered. Um, What happened to individuals um, only mattered in relation to the pharaoh. So, you know, when you get the early pyramid texts, um, they're addressing initially just the pharaoh. And then gradually over the millennia of Egyptian civilization, um, there's a sort of broad democratizing effect, you might say. And as you come down the social strata, more and more people start to worry about the afterlife. Um, So you get the early period where um, you have the pyramid building, which only a pharaoh could do, and it only mattered to a pharaoh. But then maybe 500 years, 1,000 years later, you start getting a lot of um, wealthy people who could build their own personal tomb um, they developed the Book of the Dead, which, again, is part of the kind of democratizing process. Originally, um, the spells and so on that you needed and the weighing of the hearts, those things which you mentioned, um, they were just in the pyramids and um, they get translated into um, papyrus texts, the Book of the Dead or the Book of the Stepping into the Day. Um, and so the, gradually there's a sense that the individual's status after life mattered, not just the pharaohs. So it's a sort of different story, but a similar kind of development. Um, and that the individual would start to worry about where they might go next, not just um, the ruler. Um, and of course also the Pharaoh saw himself um, as being reborn in the next pharaoh as well, you know, so the the kind of Osiris and Horus myth. Mm. Um, the old Pharaoh became Osiris, um, the sort of uh, the the father god, the paternal god who died, and then was reborn in Horus, um, the son uh, carrying it on. So you get both a kind of vertical aspect. Um, that mattered with the Pharaoh as well as the horizontal aspect through time. And, uh, but broadly speaking, this sort of democratizes is the word that's normally used. And so more and more people start to worry about what's going to happen to them after death as well.
1: And so then Christianity takes further this process because the idea is that Jesus ascends and opens the way for all his followers to ascend into heaven. Um, and those that don't still go down as it were. Um, so would you see that? I mean, it looks to me like a direct continuity of the Egyptian process, yeah, I think um in many respects,
2: I think we've we've touched on this before in previous conversations that the genius of Christianity was to truly democratize what had been part of older traditions um so um you get the sense of um well, it's broadly in St paul this idea um that uh everybody should have access to the mysteries that previously um, had been to limited groups um, mm. and particularly elite groups. Um, and that um, the point about everybody having a personal relationship to Jesus um, was that um, they too could um, have a direct uh, anticipation of the resurrection that would be theirs um, rather than just the kind of elite Pharaoh and the, the secretive priests, as it were, who yes. knew the Osiris rites before. Um, yeah, so it, it, I think Christianity is, is part of this kind of continuity process so, so that now, as it were, everybody worries, if they worry at all, about what's going to happen after they die.
1: But what puzzles me is how this idea of the shades, Hades or Sheol is, you're going back into the ancestors, you're dissolving away, you become a shade. Um, and then with early Christianity, the early form of Christianity, you have the option of going up. But then the idea of hell as a place of punishment, where you're sort of devoured. I mean, all these images of pain and suffering, you're devoured to the jaws of hell. It's like being eaten by a predator. Or you're in flames and punished by the flames of hellfire. Where all that comes in, because by the Middle Ages, there's already this kind of imagery. And oddly enough, it continues right to this day. I was talking recently to Larry Dossie, who, as you know, is a holistically-minded doctor, who grew up in Texas. And he told me that when he grew up in a small town in Texas, um, in a Baptist family, um, he was terrified by these endless sermons and stories about hell and the punishment and the guilt and the fear. And then when he had his baptism by total immersion... um, Uh, there was an enormous sense of relief because he felt he'd now been spared all this pain and suffering that his imagination had been filled with. And then, even then, he didn't think it had worked, so he had to get baptized again because he he asked for a second one because these fears kept coming back. Now, you know, I was raised Christian in a Methodist family. I went to an Anglican boarding school uh, before I became an atheist and then went on a long journey and found my way back. But... um, you know, I've been to hundreds of sermons, maybe thousands in my life, and I've never, ever been afraid of hell or had people tell me about hellfire. Or um, this has never been a reality for me um, in a kind of normal English Christian background. Um, so what's going on with these images of hell? A lot of people turn against Christianity because they say it's all based on fear of hell. It's never been my experience. Um, and I've never heard in the Anglican Church anyone talking like this. Now, where did that come in? And why is it confined to certain Christian denominations or sects?
2: Well, I guess it's complicated, but my broad sense would be that um, in the Catholic Church, in the Roman Catholic Church, so we're talking about the West here, but so in the Roman Catholic Church, um, there was also this third state of purgatory mm. and uh Broadly speaking, the idea was that when you died, you had to go through a process of purgation in order to be able to tolerate the kind of the glory of God, the, 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 the holiness of God. And, you know, this is amazingly portrayed in Dante's Divine Comedy, where Dante and um, Virgil first and then um, Beatrice later travel through hell through purgatory and then enter paradise and rise mm. into paradise. And for Dante himself at traveling, it's a, it's a process of, of purgation and clarification. And, mm. you know, he can't tolerate paradise at first. It's too bright. Um, so you, in the, in the Roman tradition, you have this idea of purgatory. Um, what happened at the Reformation, which is when the Protestant tradition comes into being and where, you know, Hellfire in, in Texas, I guess, was preached in a Protestant church, um, is that, Purgatory was rejected by the Protestants because it had become very entwined with what they saw as corruption in the Catholic Church, which was essentially paying lots of money to have masses said to get you out of purgatory. Um, And this is what Luther objected to in the 95 Theses. Um, So um, you get purgatory drops away, um, but that then leaves um, the individual facing a kind of one-off judgment at the point of death where they either go up to heaven or they go down to hell. And so hell. the product of this is that hellfire comes back with a vengeance at the time of the reformation um, because the Protestant imagination has found it very hard to conceive of what might happen after death, apart from a sort of moment of judgment, a final act. And so people go around terrified um, as to whether they're, um, they're, they're killed or they're going to burn or not. Now what happens in the Anglican church is somewhere in the middle um, that uh, the Anglican Church didn't have a full-on Protestant Reformation um, in the way that uh, other Protestant churches did. You know, Anglican Anglicanism technically is Reformed um, Catholicism rather than um, a Protestant or Reformed Protestant. Um, so I think that's why in the Anglican Church you don't get a sort of full-on sense of hell. Um I mean, I was brought up in an Anglican. I can remember worrying a little bit about reading verses like all sins can be forgiven except the sin against the Holy Spirit, um, which I think is in the Synoptic Gospels. Mm. And hoping that I hadn't kind of committed the sin against the Holy Spirit, mm. I wasn't quite sure what it was. Mm. So I, I, I suppose I never I never had a, a hellfire and sort of damnation sermon, but I, there were sort of echoes of it around and about. And I sort of, you know, said my prayers, kept my fingers crossed and hoped that it would sort of be all right. Mm. Um, so Anglicanism doesn't quite have the full on, Protestantism, mm. but nonetheless doesn't really have purgatory either. Um, although. Of course, you know, people increasingly, I think, in the Anglican Church do pray for the dead again. That's sort of coming back in again, uh, as possible. You know, people will have requiem masses in an Anglican Church, mm. um, you know, when it's standard in a Catholic Church uh, at a funeral to have a requiem. Mm. Um, so, you know, maybe you're, you're caught some, your experience is somewhere in the middle between these two. Yes. You know, main, mainstream versions of, of, of uh, Christianity. I mean, maybe just to add one final detail is that I believe that, the official Roman Catholic doctrine now is that hell is empty. Um that although there is a place called hell, um as it were God's love wins out eventually. Um so, so, the, you mean, so you're either
1: in heaven or purgatory,
2: but yeah, yeah, yeah. So hell is a sort of a place but it's actually empty. Mm-hmm. Um and you, you there's a similar debate going on in American Protestantism. So this um very um important evangelical figure Rob Bell um who had a mega church in the US um and then he fell out with a lot of um, other evangelicals because he wrote this book called love wins um and uh it sort of does what it says on the tin that his idea was that love eventually wins no one ends up in hell um but it created huge ructions um amongst american evangelicals and he was ostracized and um you know he he was very much vilified for that view
1: i see Well, of course, the idea of purgatory makes sense to me as as an intermediate stage. It's a bit like the Tibetan idea of the bardo, that the light, I mean, in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, when you die, you have this chance of going into the light. But for most people, the light is terrifying because they're afraid of being annihilated or totally dazzled by it. So they turn away from the light and they have a lesser light and turn away from that until after turning away from a lot of lights and going through an intermediate zone, they're born again and and take reborn in a physical body as a person or an animal maybe but um so the idea that when we die we we're not ready to go into a kind of state of like ultimate mystical state of blissful union it is totally plausible to me and that there might be an intermediate zone i personally find that the most plausible theory and i think of purgatory is a kind of dream-like state that when we die, it's like being in a dream world from which we can't wake up. But we can go on beyond it to um, a state of, like, mystical union. But that also, the dream model, also raises the possibility we might be trapped in a nightmare. And a nightmare uh, might be the image of hell. And indeed, these medieval portrayals of hell or the imaginations of Baptist preachers in Texas might be based on nightmares, and if one thinks about what form nightmares have, and you know more than me, or uh, listen to people's dreams, and I don't, but, um, the, the, um, it seems to me some of the basic types would be being chased by monsters, that's or devouring predators, that's what my own children had as nightmares mainly. They were being chased by monsters or giants that gobble up children. Fairy tales are full of these predatory figures, like. Little Red Riding Hood and the Wolf. Um, That's one form of nightmare, which I presume goes back in the collective unconscious to um, the fact that humans were victims of predators and that, you know, our ancestors and most animals have been victims of predators over the millennia and, I mean, millions of years. The second is the, the, the burning, I mean, being trapped in a fire. Something made real through burning people at the stake as a punishment, but being trapped in a fire. Um, another is being imprisoned somewhere you can't get out, sort of smothered and imprisoned. Um, and again, this would happen if you're buried in rubble or perhaps even a memory of being in the womb before you were born. You're being constricted and it's deeply uncomfortable and you're in, in the, the mother's contractions. You're trapped in the space you want to get out from, but can't at least straight away. And I don't know if there's other ingredients of nightmares. Would you say those are some of the main ones?
2: Yeah, well, um, the the, the sort of schema that came to my mind when you were talking about that was um, the Buddhist one, um, the Wheel of Samsara again, which is the idea that um, traditionally it's told us when you die, you go to either sort of heavenly states or hellish states. Um, But what a lot of modern Buddhists do now, and especially in Western Buddhism, if they have a psychotherapeutic, um, influence um, is that they interpret these as kind of psychological states that people can actually enter into in this life um you know so some people live in very hellish states i mean one that's often talked about is the realm of the hungry ghosts and this is the idea that um whatever you try and take in in life never satisfies you um it leaves you sort of perpetually hungry um, and this can be mapped onto psychological states that psychotherapy has talked about as well and then that there are more paradisical states where you just uh you know as it were enjoying the pleasures of things all the time and and no questions about life seem to come to mind um it sounds like quite a nice zone to be in but the trouble with the the the, the paradisical state is that nothing can change everything just sort of stays the same so in the buddhist typology the best incarnations are actually the human incarnations because then you have some chance to work on yourself you can make choices you can realize you've made mistakes Mm. things can sort of develop um, and similarly, in psychotherapy, that maps onto the idea that um, taking some time out to reflect and to work out what's going on, that is what makes change possible rather than just kind of repeating um, your life without even hardly realising. Um, so, yeah, I think that, you know, there are different schemas that, that where nightmares, uh, dreams of various kinds um, do map onto older traditional notions as to what happened after death whether that be going into paradise or whether that be going to hell. Uh, and Dante too, you know, is, it, you can read Dante very much um, as a kind of psychological journey as much as a metaphysical journey. Um, and the different um, circles of hell, the different tiers of purgatory um, are very much associated with different states of mind, And um, whether that be pride or lust or greed. Um, in hell, you're locked in pride, lust and greed, which is why there's no hope. Um, you know abandoned hope will enter here in hell there's no possibility of change um, whereas in purgatory and um, people are suffering these things but they know that they're being uh, they're working it out they're being released from what had locked them on earth and so they'll be able to enter paradise at some point Um so you know there's it's very interesting how there's a kind of a cross between the this life and different states in this life as opposed to the next life um,
1: a more linear kind of notion I see, yes. But if it has someone done a kind of taxonomy of nightmares, though? Because these presumably would be the, the hell-like states that people th- are deeply afraid of. I mean, there's a sense in one way in which they may be worked out today is because people don't hear sermons about hell. Most people don't go to church or hear any sermons at all. Uh, but horror films... Um, and seemed to me to be one way in which these scenarios are worked out. And you've got science fiction dystopias where people are trapped in sort of appalling, dystopic worlds. You've got vampire films where you're trapped by predatory monsters who, you know, Dracula and people who suck your blood. Um, You've got uh, sort of disaster movies of one kind or another, vast inundations, you know, like huge floods. Uh, You've got... The aliens invading from outer space, sort of um, uh, terrifying creatures who can destroy civilization as we know it. I mean, maybe that's the way in which these hellish imaginations are worked out today and which fill people's minds and in turn fuel their nightmares.
2: Yeah, well, it, in psychotherapy, the, the you know, the chap most closely associated with this. All this is Jung. Um, it's not so much a taxonomy, but um, using Jung's notion of archetypes um, will be the way that it's done. Um, you know, so the dream of being devoured um, might be related to um, the archetype of a devouring parent um, mm. that couldn't, for example, let their child grow up and become an individual in their own right but was constantly sucking the life out of the child in order to feed their own inadequacy mm. um, you know the parent that couldn't let the child be an individual that um, that so it, the sort of developmental psychology is mapped onto the archetypal ideas that mm. then might manifest either individually in dreams or collectively um, in films. Mm. Um, but I think that your pointing to films is really fascinating because in a way films are, as I think you're saying, films are serving the purpose that perhaps religious mythology traditionally would have done. You know, that a medieval person would have gone into a great cathedral and might have experienced the cathedral as well as representing a whole um, cosmology a whole, as it were, map of the cosmos, um, with you know, the stars on the roof being the um the heavenly realms, and then maybe the judgment seen above um mm. uh, the, in, in the arches representing the hellish realms. Um that might also have sort of been experienced as um a depiction of their life, as it were they might mm. have been drawn to different parts of the cathedral depending on where they were in life. And mm. and of course different saints too have different kind of qualities. Some of the saints are a more associated with light others associated with fights and battles Mm. um you know so whereas now i suppose and we kind of pick our movie you might say um Mm. and you know some of us want to go and see um a a vampire movie that that somehow connects with us um and so vampire movies became very popular or maybe the sci-fi more utopian movies which are much more like maybe the heavenly realms um Mm. you know certainly star trek um is often depicted as a kind of more perfectly functioning version of human society, for example. Mm. Um, yes, yeah, so I, I, th- I, it's, it's, I, am yeah, why these films are so popular does make sense when you think about how they might be connecting first of all with our, our own inner life, which of course is active and turning over the whole time, mm. but maybe also they've become Erzat's version of heavenly realms and hellish realms as well in a world that otherwise doesn't really quite know what to make of life after death anymore.
1: Yes. I suppose one puzzle is why people so want to go and see horror movies that are frightening. I mean, they, they're designed to be scary. They're designed to play on our fears. They're designed to play on the idea of ghosts and spooky things and things that go bump in the night and ruthless predators and serial killers who have us in their power and, and you know, psychopaths. And um, um, presumably um, they must give people nightmares. I mean, they do me if I if I go and see a scary film, I find it quite hard to sleep after seeing. It. I mean, I don't watch many films myself, but um, they have a powerful effect on me. And I imagine they must do on lots of people.
2: Yeah, well, if my friend Jules Evans, who you know, Jules as well, if yes. he was here. He would say that um, human beings need states of ecstasy um, because to be human is to always want more. And to be human and feel trapped in a merely human world is kind of intolerable. That's part of what it is to be human. You know, my pussycats don't mind that they're just trapped in a pussycat world. That's absolutely fine for them. Um, but part of what it is to be human is to want more, to be able to imagine more, want to connect with more. Um, and so he argues that in his book about ecstasy, that um, in a culture which doesn't really have much of religious ecstasy anymore... Um, other forms of ecstasy emerge um, and and the film industry is a kind of entertainment and ecstasy entertainment um, is one of them. And the point about going to see a horror movie, um, if you like horror movies, is that it genuinely frightens you, but you also know it's kind of safe fear because the movie is going to come to an end. Um, you know, you're kind of held in the womb, if you like, of the cinema. Um, and so you can undergo this kind of ecstatic experience of feeling terrified, feeling out of your mind, out of your skin, you mm. know. Um, uh, and then but then you can sort of, re- sort of return to reality um and there's something cathartic about that um as it were a whole um swathe of um your kind of uh, uh, human emotions um where you're aware of forces and um uh, things that might happen to you which are kind of beyond your control you're able to experience that vicariously um so you have the ecstatic experience but without having to be actually you know sp- have your blood sucked by a vampire, as it were. Yeah, so they're, they're kind of ersatz, heavens and hells. And they come to an end.
1: Yeah. But, I mean, purgatory comes to an end because it may take a long time, but you go through it. Whereas these images of eternal hell, I suppose in that sense they do inherit from Sheol and Hades the idea that it's they don't come to an end because you go down into the realm of shades and you don't come out of it again. Yeah, well, see, Dante is very interesting about this. So in Dante's
2: hell, the the root problem that people have is not actually the sins they've committed, but is that they can't focus on the present. They're either obsessed with what happened to them in life in the past, or they're terrified of what's about what's going to happen to them in the future, and that actually traps them in the present. And there's a there's a, a hugely profound truth there that if you can't, as it were, take the next step that's right in front of you, you can't take any steps at all, and so the hellish state um in a in a way the most profound sense in dante is the people that are either stuck in the past or obsessed with the future and they can't change whereas people in purgatory know that they've got to take sort of responsibility for their sins and that actually is the beginning of their healing because then they can take the next step that gradually will release them from what's otherwise trapping them um so again there's a kind of really uh, uh, ha- interesting yeah. Hell is not... Ultimately, hell in Dante is not where God has sent them. God actually hardly appears in the Divine Comedy. It's not till right at the end that you have a v- sort of mystical vision of God. Um, what it becomes clear, what's revealed to Dante, is that people, as it were, are in their... Nowadays, you say people are in their own hells, and they don't know that they can't find a way out. That's really what he discovers when he goes to hell.
1: Very, very yeah. interesting. So, I mean, the equivalent in maybe in psychotherapy would be depression, where people are... Is that more about being trapped in the past? And anxiety would be by being afraid of the future. I mean, would that would those be the kind of psychological states?
2: Yeah, certainly. I mean, it's it, one of the huge breakthroughs that comes in therapy is when people can realise that, as it were, they can take um, a little step now, and it's not going to solve their problems immediately, um, uh, which is to be too fixated on the future. But they're also not just condemned to repeat the past um you know which is mm. freud called it the repetitive there um uh, repetitive compulsion um I mean, I, that's not quite the right expression but something like that the idea that you're trapped with just repeating things um yeah you you begin to realize that there is a present and you can occupy the present just enough to be able to start to make a
1: difference yeah so there's a way out of hell even for those who feel trapped in it
2: yeah as um Well, I suppose hell, strictly speaking, is the zone that you're in when you feel there isn't a way out. When you start to feel that there is a way out, you've moved into purgatory and then you're on your way to paradise. Mm.
1: Well, maybe that's the sin against the Holy Spirit, because the sin against the Holy Spirit is to deny that there is a Holy Spirit.
2: Thank you for that. that that's uh, I've just uh, taken a little step in the right direction, having <laughs> worried about that. No, that, But that does make sense. That absolutely makes sense. It's, in a way, it's a version of abandoned hope or who enter here. And um, if you're yes. in a state where you feel there's no help, that's a kind of hellish state. If you think there's
1: no help, there's no spirit, there's nothing that can help you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then you are, as it were, sinning against the spirit, which can always give you hope if you can trust in it.
2: Yes, yes, yeah. No, that really makes sense. Um, and things like pride and 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 so on can really lock you in to that mm. state where you can't you you know you you can't you can't accept other people's help. Mm. So it is a w- very real state um, you know in this life regardless of the next I
1: think. Mm. Well thank you Mark. Cheers I mean, for that I, yeah. I th- think I, I understand more what's going on than I did at the beginning of our conversation. I'm very grateful.
2: Great well thank you too. Thank you for the person who suggested it. And yes. do, do suggest more. Yes it's great.
1: Check
0: out the Sheldrake-Vernon Dialogues if you want to hear more, simply go to Sheldrake.org. But that's generally not what's happening. What's happening is that people are trying to pull down white civilization because for whatever reason they feel that they cannot match it. In the hurly-burly competition of us mere biped mammals, that is what is going on. And that's why the white race is continually being attacked. Not because it was evil, and there were certainly evil aspects to history, as there was in all races and cultures, but because the achievements cannot be matched, let alone exceeded. Therefore, the statue must be cast down. (laughs) One of these boxes is a key. Do not open it yet. Okay, everybody, listen up. Here is the deal. If your box has a key, you will be the last person today to get one of those cute little G6s. Okay? Who will it be? Are you ready? Hold on. Cue the drum roll. All right, open your boxes. Open your boxes. One, two, three.
1: I don't want to be indiscreet about specific people. Right. Okay. I mean, some of the boys there were very young. <laughs> I don't either. Yeah,
0: we didn't think that that
2: was strange so we don't try it on, but apparently everyone pretty much tries their clothes on, so I want you guys to comment
0: below and let me know if you try your clothes on before you buy them. <laughs> comment
2: below and <laughs> let, let you know. me know if you try your clothes on before you buy them.
1: And let me tell you right up front, you young people, you want to marry a black man, you girls, don't ask me to do it, because I will not. I refuse. I cannot do it with a conscience toward God. And look these quotes in the face. I knew it. It don't matter what kind of dog food it is, folks. It just tastes like shit.
0: Don't settle for less. Support the best. Become a patron over at patreon.com forward slash naturalbornalchemist. If you become a patron, all of your wildest dreams will come true. Considering the topic of this episode, I got to close with the track "Ave Satani by composer Jerry Goldsmith. You might know this song from the film Omen. Next week we are going to be joined by MAPS founder and legendary psychedelic researcher Rick Doblin. Till then, freedom is in the mind.